So uh, we are in Exodus chapter 7, uh, the continuing uh, account of how Moses uh, is currently confronting uh, the Pharaoh and demanding that the nation of Israel be released from their slavery and their bondage inside uh, Egypt. Um, there are uh, you know, a number of things regarding this. I, I, I do want to uh, point out again, I, I wrote it down and left the post-it note. Um, there's an excellent documentary um, about uh, the Exodus evidence and um, the you know we talked last night or last week about the uh, cities that the nation of Israel uh, was building and how uh, you know in the uh, chapter six uh, as punishment the Pharaoh uh, because Moses is requesting that they be released and allowed to leave um, Pharaoh makes it harder takes the straw away and we talked about how the straw acted as a binding agent and also a hardening agent for the bricks. And um, the archaeological digs uh, show that the bricks go through those changes. The lower levels uh, in those supply cities uh, had straw, and then uh, you know the mid-level uh, bricks uh, had stubble, just like what they could grab and rip, even root systems and dirt being mixed in. And then the upper levels having no straw uh, of any kind uh, mixed into them. The, you know the Egyptian historians want to insist that uh, that wasn't uh, Jewish slavery that was uh, building those uh, cities in those locations, and they get all technical about the timeline. Well, this documentary uh, about the evidence, and still on Netflix, uh, uh, presents the fact that the Egyptian historians' timelines are off dramatically because... Uh, the Egyptians uh, manipulated their history. They didn't uh, record uh, their misdeeds or their failures. So if their um, you know, army was defeated, they didn't record that in uh, their history. If they had a particular uh, king uh, that uh, fell from uh, his prominence, they would remove him from all of their uh, historical documentations, their monuments and Everything would be destroyed and uh, his face and image would be chiseled off from everything. So they, they constantly are shifting their timelines and changing their history and making it such that, you know, from inside Egyptian history, it's very difficult to get any kind of an accurate picture. You have to rely upon the surrounding nations and their depiction of Egyptian history. So... Um, if you get the opportunity uh, to, uh, you know, see the Exodus evidence and that that documentary, uh, it's a, it's a remarkable uh, piece of work uh, regarding uh, the fact that no, this is a historical account. This isn't, you know, a Bible story. This this really took place, including the death of the firstborn. Uh, once we get to that, uh, you know, there are mass graves. Uh, inside uh, Israel and even in Goshen, the land um, to the south where the people of uh, Israel lived. So just some remarkable evidence. Again, it's a historic account, not a story. So we're right in the middle of uh, Moses confronting Pharaoh uh, over this need to let the children of Israel go. Uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1 
So the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. Now, before we go on, there's some later discussion uh, that Jesus has with uh, the uh, religious leaders of his day where um, you know, they are threatening to stone him. And uh, you know, he says, you know, for which of my good deeds are you stoning me? And their reply is, you know, none of your good deeds. It's the fact that you make yourself out to be God that we want uh, to stone you uh, to death. And Jesus goes into a discussion with them there about how the nation of Israel was referred to as gods and the leadership. And I don't want to create any confusion, but if you're going to be a serious student and read any of this and see here Moses saying, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, God isn't implying that there's anything, you know, of God about Moses or uh, the people or the judges that he sets up inside Israel. The idea is that they hold the power of God. Okay, you know, I mean, the judges of Israel uh, had the capacity uh, to put people to death. You know, life and death was in their hands. That's what God is saying. You, you get around uh, the likes of Jehovah's Witnesses and you know, they, they're you know, going to manipulate that and try to you know, do things saying Jesus was not God, any number of uh, you know, different approaches. Jesus was God in the flesh. That needs to be very clear. Here, <clears throat> God isn't saying anybody can become a God, you know, as the Mormons falsely teach. You know, if you pursue their belief system and do everything right according to their plan, you'll become a God and get your own planet. And then you'll be able to populate that with all of your offspring. And, you know, then you can develop your own plan to save all of those people. You'll become their savior. I mean, it gets weird once you start departing from what the Lord is saying. So now that I've made you as confused as I possibly can, uh, just for clarification's sake again, Jesus is God. Very simply, that's what John chapter 1 tells us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and then what, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is God. That's a very simple understanding from the Scripture. Uh, here, you know, and when the Lord refers to men as being as God, it's because of the power that He bestows into their life, and they're going to have the appearance to those they minister to as you know, the very power of God. Moses is, in just a few moments here, going to be changing all of the water of Egypt into blood. That That is going to raise some eyebrows. It's going to cause people to look at him as, you know, being supernatural to a degree. So again, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh. Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. So just to paint that picture. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of this land, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, I want to dwell again on this issue of I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Uh, there is you know, two schools of thinking within Christianity. Uh, within especially Protestant Christianity, you know, that which is non-Catholic, 
that is Calvinism and Armenianism. And I know I'm way over simplifying the two schools of thinking, but it's basically like this. The Calvinists say that God intended for those who were going to become Christians to become Christians. And they had the people had no choice in that matter. God just made them Christians because that's what he wanted to do. And everyone else that didn't become a Christian, God didn't want them to become Christians. And, and it literally goes as far as saying that God literally just created them to send them to hell. Okay, when you say it that way, I hope your heart kind of sinks. Like, that doesn't sound like God at all. That's, that sounds bad. Okay. So the other side of the picture is the Armenian side. And again, I know I'm way oversimplifying this, but it's essentially the idea that, no, it's all about choice. Uh, you could choose to be a Christian and you can choose to un-be a Christian. Um, you, know, you, you could lose your salvation more or less, is what's being taught. <clears throat> These two schools of thinking have so polarized that now within Christianity, they're like fighting with one another and you know creating all kinds of chaos and confusion. I want to run through a few verses here so that we understand the character of God. Okay, This is what human beings have done with certain verses in the scripture they've made their belief systems out of it and separated a lot of the body of christ christianity has you know been pulled apart by this so here are some things to think about malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says for i the lord do not change okay so his character is unchanging he isn't going to be one way during a certain period of time right we hear people say Oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. That's the same God, and their character is unchanged, right? You know, very, very merciful. God did not want to destroy the incredibly wicked Ninevites. That's why Jonah did not want to go minister to them, because his fear was he was going to go warn them on behalf of God, and they were going to repent, and then God would spare them, which is exactly what happened. You know, God's loving, gracious character in the Old Testament wanted to spare an incredibly evil nation of people. So cruel, so unthinkably murderous, right? <clears throat> and yet, at times, we see him bringing his judgment. Move to the New Testament, right? Jesus, very graciously forgiving people. Woman caught in the act of adultery. Group wants to stone her to death. Jesus says, you know, where are your accusers? They've all left. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more, right? Then move forward to the book of Revelation, and there he is in his magnificence, you know, clothes that appear like lightning, hair white as wool, eyes like coals of fire, feet like polished brass, sword proceeds from his mouth that he kills all of his enemies with, you know, a balance in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is loving, gracious, kind, and merciful. He's also the judge of all things, Old and New Testament. Okay, so God doesn't change. He, he isn't, you know, throughout time behaving different ways towards different people. Follow this, Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 44, Jesus speaking, said, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, if you're thinking eh, that's some kind of punishment, I hate it when it rains, that's not what this culture was thinking. This is an agricultural society. They're all farmers. You know, Even the people that don't farm the land, their whole economy is based around the fact that their neighbors do. Okay? Even if they're running a lunch stand where they're selling falafel to everybody, okay? if you've been to Israel, you know what I mean by that, okay? <clears throat> they're supplying the farmers with that food. Okay? So, so this whole you know, culture runs on the fact that crops grow. The sun shining and the rain falling is equal to money. Okay, God causes blessing to come to the evil and the good. Okay, so, so you know, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, he's the same with Moses and the people of Israel as he is with Pharaoh. He's not, he's not hating Pharaoh and wanting to destroy him. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, a strong proof text in regard to this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, slowness, but is long-suffering. He's patient towards us. And then here's the punchline. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you hear that? Not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That would include Pharaoh. God wants Pharaoh to stop his sinfulness, to come and believe in him and follow him. Last one right here, James chapter 1. I think the most important in this, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So, so look, uh, you know, there it is. I've underlined it for you. Do not be deceived. The strongest indication that you could be deceived and that there's going to be an effort to deceive you. Do not allow yourself to, to be deceived about what follows in this verse. So listen, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation he doesn't treat one person one way and another person another way. Or shadow of turning. Oh, I'll be good. To, no, I won't. I'll be evil to Pharaoh. God doesn't deviate. He doesn't change. He gives good gifts. Pharaoh is currently engaged in a crime that God is going to tell them later is deserving of death. He's kidnapped an entire nation of people and he's using them as his slave labor. He needs to set them free. He needs to let them go. Sin destroys us, right? 
This isn't just a situation where God is hearing the cries of his people, Israel, and saying, I have to make that stop. He's also concerned about how that sin is affecting Pharaoh. He wants to deliver Pharaoh from the way he's destroying himself with this behavior. We, we so often have that thought or you know process in our mind where we're thinking somehow God is holding me back or doing a bad thing to me. Whatever God is dealing with you about and me about, he's trying to do it for our sake. Yes, others might be affected. Yes, others might be involved. But he's dealing with me and he's dealing with you for our benefit. So this statement, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, the illustration I've used many, many times. I quoted Matthew, uh, Jesus saying, I'll make the sun to shine on the evil and the good. You know, it really has to do with the condition of your heart. Pharaoh's heart and your heart sitting here this morning. If your heart is ready to be softened, then the glorious light of Christ shining on it will melt your heart. If you're resistant to God, it will harden your heart. That same love will melt the ice and harden the concrete. The sun isn't any different on one subject as it is the other. It's the condition of the recipient. Pharaoh is the one who's in this condition where his heart will harden. So if you have further questions about Calvinism versus Arminianism, um, in, in most of the points, both groups of people are correct on a lot of levels. They're wrong. Both of them are wrong on some levels. We split the distance and walk right down the middle of the road on that because what Calvinism and Arminianism has done is divide the body of Christ. And we're not interested in doing that at all. You know, yes, God predestined us, and we need to choose him. Both things are true. If you're interested, we have a, a small book out front, Calvinism versus Armenianism, uh, the Word of God, written by Chuck Smith. And I mean booklet. Very small, and uh, you can read it in an afternoon. Uh, it just covers all of the passages from the Scripture regarding both of these points, and I think it will help you understand uh, the balanced view that we hold. Verse 4. But Pharaoh uh, will not heed you, the Lord said, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, well, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from amongst them. God is saying, I'm going to do all this work. It's going to be you. You're going to go. You're going to speak. You're going to say. You're going to do. But in the end, it's going to be me that brings my people out. And that's very significant for any of us that work around or in ministries. <laughs> it's not our ministry. It's God's ministry. And we're simply a vessel that he's working through. In the end, he does the work in each one of our hearts. And you might think right now, like, oh, if I could see a miracle, oh, if I could just see some of the things I've read about in the Bible, then I'd be you know, a believer or a more serious Christian or more. No, you wouldn't. You know, these people 
both the nation of Israel and the rebellious Egyptians see amazing, miraculous works of the Lord, and they continue to struggle to do anything to walk in their faith. It's about believing what the Word of God says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. If it came by seeing miracles, that's what the Scripture would say. Faith comes by seeing miracles. It doesn't say that. Faith comes from believing what the Word of God says. So, keep that in mind as we move forward. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Hey, I want to make a point right here for every one of us. It might be more applicable for those of us that are a little older, but... I want to make it all of us. There's not a line in the sand where you're not useful to the Lord anymore. You don't get to a certain age and be like, oh, well, you know, if I had done something in my youth, perhaps I might have. But, you know, those years are behind me. And now, you know, I couldn't possibly, nothing could be farther from the truth. 80 and 83 years old, these guys are finally entering the ministry. Okay. Oh, well, they end up living so long, it doesn't really apply. Okay, how about this? Two-thirds of their lives are over. They've got one-third left. Have you got a third of your life left? <laughs> like, get busy, would you? You know, if you're not already. Listen to what the Lord is saying here. Oh, well, you know, it isn't even about time. Just the mess I've made. I would have. Look, Moses is a murderer. Do we all understand that? He's lived in exile for 40 years because he killed a man. Have you done that? You know, you don't have to raise your hand or anything. Have you screwed up really bad? And you're somehow thinking, I can't, I'm not, I'm useless. No. Follow. Listen to what's being said. 7 verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and they did so just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. I mean, that would be pretty astonishing uh, to see it. I want you to notice that this was Pharaoh's request, right? Now, we've read this, and maybe we've read it dozens or hundreds of times in our life, and we've seen the whole interaction with God and Moses as he's been being prepared for this. Please hear me in this. This is God meeting Pharaoh in the place of his need. Pharaoh's not going to believe unless he sees a miracle. Okay, let's show him a miracle. Does he believe? No. No, he doesn't. So that God can be without excuse and so that Pharaoh will be convicted. You want to see a miracle? How about this one? Still don't believe. Have you been that way with God? Again, no show of hands, right? 
Oh Lord, if only you would, and then he does, and then we continue down the same path we were on. The rebellious human heart doesn't ever want to submit to the authority of God. This is what repentance is all about, about making your heart obedient. Making your heart obedient. Our emotions are a very powerful thing. You know, the war that we're engaged in that Paul described, you know, he talks about the, the, the heavenly realm and the war between essentially good and evil and how, you know, we do have weapons, but they're not of this earth. But he says in the process, he says that, you know, the, the war is about taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and casting every down casting down every imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God the war is for the control of your mind pharaoh is in the place right here well if only i could see this you know miracle and here's why look at verse 11 pharaoh also called his wise men and sorcerers so the magicians of egypt <clears throat> they also did in like manner with their enchantments, for every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. Now, if you're thinking that it's an equal um, <coughs> sort of miracle, it's not. Okay, And we're going to see some things unfold here that show us it's God's miracle is a true miracle. Theirs is deception. <clears throat> there is uh, Dennis and Sandy Zeck are friends of ours that have a ministry uh, where they perform illusions uh, to uh, help you understand how our enemy uses lies to manipulate us. You think you're seeing something, and then they show you afterwards that you're not actually seeing what you think you're seeing. Okay, So in particular, in the Hebrew language, this says outright that they threw down their serpents in fire, or they threw down their rods in fire, they became serpents. To this day, this trick is done by illusionists, where snakes are wrapped in stiff paper that has a flammable material in it, and they spark the material and big burst of smoke and as you know with most reptiles heat really livens them up okay so sedate the animal subdue it wrap it in this stiff paper and it looks like a cane right and then with the strike of the spark they ignite it it bursts big cloud of smoke the fire awakens the snake dramatically as it writhes around and now they have a snake in their hand. It seems that these tricksters, sorcerers, magicians, this was a commonly performed trick. Now if you're thinking like, why would God have Moses do this illustration if God knew this was a trick. Pause the thought for a moment. Does everybody in the room remember the uh, standoff between God's prophets and the prophets of Baal? And they build the altar, and he says, go ahead, 
you know, call fire down from heaven, and they're screaming and cutting themselves and jumping on the altar, and no fire falls from heaven. Everybody remember that, right? And then what does he do? He digs a big moat around his altar, and then he brings in massive jugs of water, has servants bring them and pour it over the offering and the wood and the entire mound till the moat is full of water, right? Remember all of this Sunday school class? And then he prays one simple prayer. God, send fire, and the fire falls from heaven and so thoroughly consumes the whole thing that there's no altar, no sacrifice, no moat. There's a hole in the ground, right? Crater, gone, right? The reason is the prophets of Baal commonly performed this trick. And what they did was days before they dug a tunnel underground and built their hollow altar on top of the tunnel where they filled it with hay and wood and then poured oil over all of that, put their sacrifice on top, and then they would have one of the guys crawl in underneath and put the torch underneath and boosh, it bursts into flames and, oh, God caused fire to miraculously appear on their altar. That is why God's prophet dug the moat around his altar so they could see there's no tunnel here. And then drench it in water so that even if there was oil, it would all be dispersed and useless, and it's not going to catch on fire. And now the fire falls, and what's left? A hole that they can now examine and see, look, there's no tunnel. God wants to show the contrast between the false and the true. These guys have been showing you miracles of, poof, here's my staff snake. Watch what happens here, every man threw down his rod and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Jesus is warning his disciples and us in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, when he said, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You're going to turn on the television and see the hucksters on there performing their magic tricks, right? Swinging their sports jacket around knocking people down, you know, the power of the Holy Spirit, all, you know, a buzz. It's an unfortunate thing that these men have been exposed as not only, you got to understand this, not only are they not healing people, they're not delivering people from sin, they're stealing countless hundreds of thousands of dollars annually, you know, taking uh, personal salaries of, you know, three, five, 
$13 million in some cases annually for their own pay. You know, chauffeured everywhere they go, flying around the world on private jets. They're ripping off the body of Christ. Imagine, imagine, not us, you know, not preaching from some point of jealousy. Imagine if they, as a group of believers, took all of that money that's being stolen from them and used it to truly preach the gospel worldwide. Imagine how they could affect the world. $13 million, that's the annual pay? You, under, you understand how far you could broadcast the gospel with radio and television and internet all over the world with that kind of budget? And instead, living on you know, 40, 60, 80, 120 acre estates, you know, 25 room mansions, their, their staff, you know, living in a separate 13 bedroom uh, facility, you know, almost a half mile away on their property. Ridiculous. Thieves, deceivers, manipulating the body of Christ. They're going to come. They're going to deceive even the elect, if possible. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. When he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the riverbank to meet him. The rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. Now, just a small point. When he goes out to the water, um, if you read the commentaries, <clears throat> there's a lot of opinions about what this means. The pharaohs historically uh, would go out to the Nile River in the mornings for a few different reasons. The most common one is just to enjoy the Nile River in the morning. You know, I mean, you live in a beautiful place. Go check out the morning uh, beauty and have your morning coffee, you know, sitting on the dock uh, on the Nile River. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's a beautiful place. He's got guys around to keep the crocodiles from killing you. So I don't, you know, it's just yeah, hang out, enjoy the beauty. The second reason that they would go is they worshiped the Nile and they worshiped the sun. Okay. So the Nile and Ra, the sun god. So it was an idea of morning prayers to go and greet these gods as they start the day. The third reason that is commonly discussed, so morning coffee, worship the sun god. Second, you know, third reason is <clears throat> also spiritual. Um, at this time of the year, they would go and look at the levels. They had stones and markers uh, to see where was the Nile. Was it over these rocks? Was it above this position? And they would then spiritually interpret what the day, the month, and the year was going to be like based upon the level of the Nile River. So, you know, I'm not going to do anything with those three explanations. It's just that more than anything, predictably, he's down at the Nile in the morning. If you read the commentators, most of them do something with each one of those interpretations. You know, he was there in the morning, and so therefore Moses was doing this because 
ABC, you know, or it was because Nile and Ra and God wanted to confront the Nile and Ra, the sun god, and make his point. And okay, great. What what do I derive from this? In the simplest form, is uh, Pharaoh is predictably down at the Nile River in the morning, right? If you know what coffee shop someone is going to be at every morning, and you need to deliver a message from God to them, you might just go to that coffee shop first thing in the morning and wait for them to arrive. Okay, So I, I think more than anything, it's just that. I'm Maybe I'm not spiritual enough. I'll just, I don't know. Someday I'll be that mature. But here he goes with the rod in hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews. <laughs> so not your Nile River, not Ra, not any other God. Let's be clear. It's the God of the Hebrews who's delivering this message. He has sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So this is God and the message that's going to be delivered to Pharaoh. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink. And the Egyptians will loathe to drink the waters. The Egyptians will loathe the waters of the Nile River. They, you know, there was a deeply spiritual attachment to the Nile River for a lot of these people. But in the end, even if they weren't religious in any way or idolatrous in any way, they had that sense of all life in Egypt comes from the Nile. It provides us with crops. It provides us with food. It provides us with sustenance. The Nile River equals life. The Nile River is about to equal death, is, is what's going to happen. God is forewarning them of this. All that you know, all that you love, all that you, you know, honor and venerate in your life is about to become a detestable thing. You would not believe the number of occasions I have sat with men and they have just wept over similar things. Now suddenly they don't have their children, they don't have their wife, they don't have their home, they don't have all of these things that were so precious to them because they neglected them as they pursued the job and all of those things deteriorated, and then all at once, the wife and the family are announcing, we're leaving you. And the job, and the career, and the education that they had venerated so highly, they now suddenly loathe. They wish they had concentrated. Nothing wrong, absolutely. I mean, education, incredible, awesome. Please get an education. Have a career. You know, work hard at your job. Be the best employee there. In the process, please do not neglect what is most important. Number one, your relationship with the Lord. Number two, all of those important relationships that God has put in your life. So many people do. They pursue certain things, thinking it's providing for them, and in the end, they loathe it. Here, God is forewarning them. This is about to occur. 19, the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over the rivers, 
over the ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the rivers, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the rivers died. The river stank. The Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Oh, my goodness. The critics and the skeptics try to find all kinds of different explanations. You know, this is something similar to, you know, red tide. And they go on and on. Look, you know, you know how it happened? when this rod touched the water and it spread out from there. And the minute people start to try and dismiss or naturalize a thing, I don't care to what degree this has some natural explanation. Oh, there was an algae bloom. There's a particular bacteria that, so what? you got to look at the timing of this and go, even if it was some of those things, God's hand is in control. That this man stands here in this moment and touches this water in this way, and I've had the same things happen in good and in bad ways in my life. Where God has poured his blessing out upon me, and I'm just left in awe at the timing, and also where he's confronted me in circumstances in order that I would know his hand was in the work. Just recently, I had a friend who walked with the Lord, had left a heroin addiction, and was doing great, had a great job. He fell back into it, unbeknownst to anyone. You know how a lot of that goes for those of us that have struggled with addiction. Toy with it a little bit. And uh, what are the odds that he would take his company's truck and leave the state of Maine, go through New Hampshire, and be entering Massachusetts to go get heroin as his pastor was returning and passed him on the interstate. Literally like, hey. (laughs) And picked up his phone and called him right up and said, uh, you've got minutes to get that truck back in the state of Maine or your boss is going to report that vehicle as stolen and you're going to be arrested wherever you are. Turn around now, go back home, get right with me, your wife, your boss, and most importantly, God. His pastor from Orrington, Maine, passing the border at the same time. You know, he's in the outside lane, headed fast lane south 
pastures in the outside lane, fast lane, headed north so that they're literally just feet apart like, hey, recognizes the company truck from, you know, Maine and says, why, well, and that's so-and-so. Oh, you got to understand the grace of God in moments like that. you got to understand the grace of God right here. Whatever reason, you come to the Nile because it's beautiful, want to see the sunrise? Beautiful red skies? How about beautiful red river? What about that? God, God will meet you right where you're at. 22. Then the Egyptian, the magicians uh, of Egypt did so with their enchantments. Pharaoh's heart grew hard, did not heed them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither his heart, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So just a tremendous difficulty that arises. I want to ask you, as we close, uh, to turn to a couple places with me. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just going to read a few verses from a couple locations. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. There, Paul says to this young pastor, Timothy, who he's raised up, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers, of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Tell me that's not a commentary on our culture. This is the world we live in, is it not? Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. What is the power of God? Well, number one, the ultimate expression of God's power is his power over death. He raised himself from the grave. But death is a result of sin. The power of God, the ultimate power of God in our life is God's power over sin. What we're hearing from the pulpit a lot of the time is, <coughs> don't worry about sin. In fact, go ahead and sin will openly affirm your sin and encourage you to come to our church. Very, very destructive thing. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. From such people, turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women. Now that isn't saying anything about you, ladies, at all. The um, interpretation is gullible effeminate. So whether you're female or male and you don't have that strength as a man or a woman 
to stand up and guard your heart and mind, but you would be susceptible to someone steering your heart and mind away from God. That's what's being implied there. They creep into households, make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. Janus and Jambres, who, who are they? They are the magicians we just read about. The magicians who came and said, oh, you're going to do a uh, uh, staff to snake? We can do that. Oh, you're going to do uh, water to blood? We can do that. Those that have an appearance of the supernatural in their life, but they do things that pull people away from Christianity. Think about that for just a minute. So do these also resist the truth? Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith that they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Janice and Jambres eventually were seen for what they were. I got a couple more verses I want you to look at. Book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 20, verse 25. This isn't like secondary to what I've been saying. Really want this to sink into your heart and mind. Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 25. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So Paul is saying to this church, I'm about to depart and you're never going to see me again. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The only way Paul can say that is if he taught the whole Bible to them. If you're thinking, whole Bible, how did Paul teach the whole Bible to them? He wasn't even with them very long. Right. Uh, we just read in the book of Acts, how they had a 12-hour Bible study, which is what we're planning on doing this morning, so settle in. I'm kidding, I'm almost done. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see, so there are supposed to be leaders within the church and pastors to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, because you're rebelling, this river is going to be turned into blood. And he's going to do that each time. If you'll just repent right now, the next wave is not going to hit you. And he refuses. And the next wave hits until he loses his firstborn children. Take it to heart, church. 
God wants us to hear his voice and turn toward him before the difficulty. The warnings are coming before the difficulty. We always act like, if only I had known. Wasn't God telling us all along the way? And yet, we forcibly continue. Lastly, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Just one verse, 2. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. For he says, An acceptable time I have heard you, and the day of salvation I have helped you. And here it is. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And brothers and sisters, dear people, that's today. That's today. It's always the day of salvation. As we started this study and talked about you know, the difference between Calvinism and Armenianism, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to experience repentance and salvation. That is the heart and mind of God. He wants us to surrender to Him. So wherever you're at this morning, wherever your heart is at, surrender. Maybe you're a person who's never surrendered your life to God. Do that this morning as we close in prayer. If you're a person who's surrendered your life to the Lord in the past, and you sit here and reflect upon this passage this morning, and you're thinking, Ah, somehow I've gotten to the place where I'm resisting God. You can stop that. You can turn to Him. Let the Lord, let the Lord minister to you today. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and we'll pray together. Melt in His presence. Allow Him to love you and to change your heart and mind. Father, I thank You so much for your love and your work, for bringing us here together today. Lord, I pray that you would help every one of us to surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, we need to. Lord, even those of us who've long ago surrendered and are working diligently to obey you, Lord, there's always so much more of dying to ourselves and living for you. Help us. Give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to be obedient. Lord, I pray, if any of us have never surrendered before, that that would be our prayer this morning. To just give up and give in to you. To allow your work to have its fruitfulness in our lives. Accomplish what you want to in us, through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.